actually Cloudberry already supports more resources and APIs than AWS config, just because they're dealing with the same problem of how to support the enormous and kind of infinite number of APIs that is just growing and you know handling all their nuances and then transforming it and normalizing into a database. You are listening to the Kubelist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for open source projects with a focus on CNCF sandbox, incubating, and graduated projects. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. Together with Benji DeGroote, we publish the Kubelist newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable software vendors such as HashiCorp, Puppet, Harness, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. Benji is the co-founder and CEO at Shipyard, where they enable teams of all sizes to build, test, and deploy faster and more reliably via their ephemeral environment management platform. Get started with ephemeral environments at shipyard.build. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show or you would like to suggest a project, find us on Twitter at readkubelist. Finally, sign up for the Kubelist newsletter and read previous issues at kubelist.com. On this episode, Yevgeny begins by describing his background in the Israeli military and how he got into cybersecurity space. Then he transitions to talk about the origins of the Cloud Query project and what the project does. Cloud Query is open source, and Yevgeny shares his thoughts on why it's open source, and then also his current thoughts on creating a commercial offering without hurting that open source project. We then dig into how the project works, use cases for Cloud Query, specifically around security and compliance, and the hard problems you know that this is solving as to why you shouldn't build this yourself. Of course, Yevgeny shares what they're currently working on in the direction of the project towards the end of the episode. Enjoy. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Kubeless Podcast. As you just heard, we have Yegeni Patz, CEO and co-founder at Cloud Query, ready to talk about the Cloud Query open source project. And of course, Benji's here too. Hey, Benji, how's everything going? Everything's good. Turbulent times, but uh, doing doing pretty well. Great. Um, so let's let's dive right in, Yevgeny. We'd love to just to start off hearing a little bit about your background. Will you tell us a little bit about your career and what led you to creating Cloud Query? Yeah, sure. So first, thanks, Mark and Benji, for hosting me. Uh, really excited to be here. And um, yeah, we'll be happy to tell a little bit about uh, myself. So uh, last 12 years, I focused a lot on entrepreneurship, uh, cybersecurity. I started my career at the Cybersecurity Intelligence Unit uh, 12 years ago. Been there for four and a half years. And after that, kind of uh, started my uh, startup journey. Uh, joined first joined uh, like a first small uh, enterprise security startup back in 2013. Uh, it was like pretty quickly acquired by Checkpoint, and then I figured I wanted to start my own startup, and also went into uh, enterprise security for a few years. But then pretty quickly I understood that I'm I'm too young for to run the company with get a demo button, so. I uh, kind of forked, and last five years I was focused solely on uh, the developer space uh, and a lot of product-led growth, a lot of open-source projects. And before Cloud Query, I ran a uh, uh, continuous uh, fuzzing as a service project called Fuzzit. It was partially open-source, but mostly focused on like our first clients were open-source projects, and it was acquired by GitLab in 2020. So I've been there for a while, learned a lot from like, the GitLab remote culture, and kind of then started Cloud Query as an open source project, which like, I can dig deeper into like why I started and so on. But I think like that's a, a high level overview, uh, and like maybe in one sentence before I like dig deeper into Cloud Query. Cloud Query is an open source project. Uh, it started as an open source cloud asset inventory, so. If you can think about it like as Terraform, but just the other way around, we connect to all the cloud infrastructure APIs, AWS, GCP, Azure, extract all the configuration, transform it, and load it into uh, Postgres uh, database, into structured tables. And then DevOps engineers, security engineers, site reliability teams uh, use us like, for a variety of use cases, starting from uh, visibility to security, compliance, monitoring, 
That's great. Um, there's about 35 things you just said that we're going to probably want to hear more about. Yeah. But I just want to go back to the beginning for a second. You mentioned early on in your career you were in the cybersecurity space. I'm not sure if you're allowed to talk about exactly what you were doing or where you were doing it. But can you tell us a little bit more about your, your early career and, and what you were doing? Yeah, sure. So I guess my, my passion to like computer science started kind of like in, in high school probably or in school. And then, sorry. So where where did you grow up, Evgeny? Uh, so I grew up in Israel, um, in uh, Haifa, it's the north. My parents actually uh, came from like from Russia back in the nineties. I also like immigrated, but I was six months old. Ah. So yeah, I'm kind of like in Israel, I just like have a bit of accent, Russian accent for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird to keep an accent from six months, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't fix it, but yeah. No, I mean, so look, there, there's obviously a trend in, especially in CNCF, but in general, about some really amazing Israeli companies coming out, and I think it's interesting to talk about um, how that education system over there kind of led to this, and then obviously there's the the mandatory military service that it seems like that played a role in your in your career and your trajectory as well. I think it'll be really interesting to understand um, whatever you can share about that with us. Yeah, so I think also like probably like if you ask like five entrepreneurs from the cybersecurity unit, uh, everyone will have like a different opinion on like how it like came out to to have this uh, nice ecosystem. But probably like it's because of different variables. But I think one thing is like the, the thing when you go to the army in, in Israel, you, it's a mandatory service, and then like some of the units like uh, or like the, the best units or. Uh, the best unit of their, like the technical one, they have like the ability to choose. So they're trying to choose the, the the smartest people that they can. Like, of course, there are also like other places with smart people. <laughs> Not saying that, but essentially, like they can choose. So basically, they bring everyone together. So it's like a great place to to learn from a lot of other smart engineers and also get like the ability to to work on interesting things like early on in your career. Uh, so I think this really, yeah, provided a great kind of place for everyone to learn and then, you know, to go out there and build interesting stuff. And other than that, I think there is also like macro uh, economics, like a lot of funding as well in Israel. So, you know, combining those two together, I think, uh, brought some interesting or good outcomes. Well, one thing I think is really interesting about the whole Israel the tech ecosystem is that you get these kids that are obviously very talented, but they do not. You didn't have a lot of experience when you're 18, at least from a professional perspective, I would guess. And I think it really creates this very creative environment where, uh, and I, I can't remember who told me this, but a, an Israeli friend told me that you guys kind of go into these uh, these very elite units. And you guys don't know what you can't do, so you guys kind of just do pretty close to impossible stuff. And it seems like it creates and fosters this just this. It's it's kind of like a startup mentality. Is is that a good way to to look at that, or or what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a good way to look at it, and I think there is also like some truth to that. But I also think that, and like I don't want to ruin the the marketing for the Israeli entrepreneur, but. There is also like the other, like the chicken and egg thing, right? That, you know, I think even if like there weren't like service security intelligence unit, like potentially outcome would be like similar because, you know, you take smart people in and then you get smart people out. Like there is a lot of like uh, good stuff happening in the between, but, you know, uh, I think smart engineers would be also like fine even like with, without it, right? So it's not just because of that, like it's definitely like helps and creates some interesting ecosystem and bonds and so on. But yeah. So let's let's move on and let, let's let's chat about the product for a little bit. Like um you defined it as a cloud asset inventory. So the way you described it, it sounds to me like I have Terraform or Pulumi or some other tool. Maybe I'm just using the AWS console and like not following any kind of modern best practices, but I'm deploying, I have all my cloud infrastructure, and then you have a service. That's querying what's available in all the infrastructure that I've created in the cloud, inserting it into a structured schemaed Postgres database that I can then have anybody on the team query to know what's out there in the cloud. Is that what Cloud Query does? Yeah, exactly. And uh, we also connect like not only like depending on your infrastructure, it, uh, 
also to other things like Okta, Cloudflare, like anything else in your infrastructure that you want, like to slice and dice or you know create, like, get visibility cross clouds and so on. But yeah, that's that's exactly it. And like I don't know if your next question is like with regards to Terraform, right? Is if everything is in Terraform, right? Why do I need to go again and to get the information if I already have it in Terraform? I mean, the question has gone through my mind. So, like, yeah. So, I think definitely, like, that's the kind of like the best case scenario. Yeah, if you got to a place like where everything is in Terraform, basically, like a grab probably would do fine for for any kind of like visibility questions. But the issue is like in yeah. medium companies, big companies, like not everything is in Terraform. So, you, like, you actually want to have this kind of to to have like a, a view of what you. What you have, and maybe also compare with like what is defined with Terraform, which is I can also talk a little bit about like how we are doing that. But yeah, basically that's the best case scenario, but that's usually not the real world scenario. Yeah, and I think that it's also fair, you know, just keeping in mind that like Terraform is a declarative system that defines what's going to run in the cloud provider, but but there are things like auto-scaling groups and like you know managed node groups for EKS, things like this that actually mean that you you don't know you're defining the criteria for the cloud provider to run. I'm assuming in that scenario, Cloud Query is able to actually tell me like what's actually running at this moment in the cloud. Yeah, exactly. That gives you the current snapshot. Great. Right, and errant clicks are a, uh, a <laughs> is a reality for all of us in the infrastructure space and the AWS console. So, so let me ask you this question: So, you take all this information and you kind of give it a, a unification, if you will, because obviously Okta is you know maybe not covered under your Terraform or your Pulumi. Um, so that's really cool. But then you decided to to put it into SQL to make it a SQL accessible. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that decision and why a modern enterprise would would want? To enable their internal teams for for SQL, yeah. So, like we started with SQL, but essentially the the biggest problem here, like you can look at it uh, like a, this problem in general more as a data problem. So the the issue usually is to get all the information from those APIs, like normalize them and put them somewhere, like in a structured way. So yeah, we started with kind of the vanilla Postgres. But uh, something that we saw that users do, and also we plan to support like other databases, they take this structured information and then they you know load it into any other place if they want to do like a different set of analysis or connect it to their like current monitoring or visualization platforms like Grafana or Superset or like whatever they have. So yeah, like you know, when it's Postgres SQL, just because it's kind of the the standard way to go, the first way to go. How do the like these different connectors like provide? Actually, I'm looking at your website. It looks like you call them providers, right? For AWS, for Azure, for Okta, etc. Like, how many of these do you have, and like how how active is the the community around like creating new ones? Or one kind of last way to look at that is if I want to run Cloud Query, but I have something that's not supported, can I just run it, or do I need to make a contribution upstream in order to get that provider in? Yeah, so oh, actually, some of our users like make contribution and we approve them pretty quickly. But you can also, you know, compile your own provider and run it. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily need to to wait for it to be, to be upstream. Though we are relatively fast, at least for now. So that's the whole idea. Because like the main problem or the main challenge here. Um, so let's say even if we go in and look into things like AWS Config, right, which is like the Enterprise or the commercial competitor from the cloud provider or Google Cloud Asset Inventory. So you will see that they have like there are a couple of uh, like disadvantages there. Like one, they usually use kind of a custom query language, so you don't have access to their own data. And second, even though they are in AWS, they don't support all the AWS APIs or GCP APIs. So actually, like Cloud Query. Already supports more resources and APIs than AWS config, just because they're dealing with the same problem of how to support the enormous and kind of infinite number of APIs that is just growing, and you know handling all their nuances and then transforming it and normalizing into a database. And this is some of the challenges also the Terraform uh, has in dealing with kind of 
providing this abstraction layer on top of uh, cloud APIs. Right. So that makes sense. And I can think of like all these different use cases. Like, let's go all the way back to the beginning, though. Like, Getting data out of the cloud provider, making it available so that I can use, you know, a Postgres query, join things like this, super powerful. Like, what was the use case you originally were building for? Yeah, so the first use case that I was looking was especially around security, and specifically, I was looking at enterprise products like CSPM, like Cloud Security Posture Manager, from you know either like big companies or startups, like companies like Palo Alto Networks, Checkpoint, or other kind of next-gen enterprise startup. And what was mind-boggling for me is, like, one, why there are so many of those, and two, like, they actually, like, all building or all implementing in-house, like, at least probably 80% of their time or development time, they're implementing this kind of closed-source ETL engine, and then just probably 20% of the time building like the rules or like the security value that they sell right so so actually it's, it's a data problem so what we started to build in Calgary is to rebuild trying to rebuild the whole stack either it's for security use cases or compliance or cost use cases rebuilding it on top of cloud query as a data app and building cloud query as a like data ingestion platform and like being open source also giving the ability for like users or, or developers write new integrations, commit and contribute to, to our official integrations and you know not being blocked by a vendor that you know can't really maintain like infinite amount of APIs and integrations. So if I'm an enterprise customer and I'm or I'm a I'm a CISO or maybe I'm someone under a CISO and I want to know from a compliance standpoint, what are all the assets that I have? Where are they? What are they doing? What is the configuration around those? Cloud query is really where is where. Yeah, so you can run just like you can run all the your compliance policies uh, with uh, SQL. Um, you can create uh, views like generic views with all your cloud assets. You know, query them across regions, query them over time, create alerts when something is not according to your company policy, and you can use a standard like query language to. To create any any rule you want, have you seen customers or, or or folks using Cloud Query to query the data and then using an external policy engine like Caverno or Open Policy Agent or something like this? And then Cloud Query is like critical to provide the data as the context for the external policy engines to make their decisions. Yeah, so it's it's a good question. And what we saw with regards to OPA and SQL, so. Uh, people who use Cloud Query, they use SQL to to write their like rules, you know, join across tables and create their their security or compliance or cost rules, and then they you know create other kind of standard alerts with their workflows, either it's Grafana or anything else. And with regards to OPA, like OPA is really good language, like for in memory processing for things like Terraform or Kubernetes, but actually running OPA on top of like all your cloud infrastructure, it will probably it won't be a great fit because it will probably just run out of memory or you will need a very uh, big machine. So I think this is like exactly where where actually you need a database. Yeah, probably there is there is no better solution than like some kind of database, either it's Postgres or something else. But uh, like we saw companies load like. Ten thousands um, of accounts and millions of resources into Postgres. Um, yeah, so yeah, there is no work, no work around uh, having a database here in that case. Sure. So let's let's talk more about policies then. So Cloud Query, how could I? You know, it completely makes sense to me that like you you have this this uh, service. And we'll talk about where it runs, how it runs, and everything. We'll get into some technical details, but like. I end up having a Postgres database that has everything that's in my AWS account or my Cloudflare account, Okta. What is your best recommendation, your best practice to like define policies that can run either regularly or continuously? And I can use these, you know, in evidence for, you know, like potential like compliance auditors or customer reports and things like this. Yeah. So the best, like our suggested way is um, so one is to look at our like pre-made policies. We have a bunch of them on our uh, website. We have 
uh, something called Calc Rehab with these providers and policies. And uh, yeah, like we made those policies for like CIS benchmarks and all kind of like the standard uh, industry standard compliance and security policies. So it's the policies are actually just list of SQL queries in an HCL file. Mm. And Cloud Query knows to, to parse them and just like run them one by one and produce a result. So you can run them in a CI and a GitHub action on like daily basis or whatever schedule you want. And then create your like alerts and events on top of it. So, so yeah, we have kind of a very simple HCL format file, which basically just group together a bunch of SQL queries which define your policy and uh, yeah, you can put them in the Git so you have all this uh, compliance and security as code thing. Let's um, switch for a second here, I think. I'm curious, Cloud Query is an open source project, but there's a company behind it, there's a commercial entity. Um, Do you have a commercial offering on top of it? Do you have plans to? How do you, can you help me understand a little bit about how you're able to continue just to work full-time on an open source project? (laughs) Yeah, so so currently we're working from... uh, from busy funding, right? But the idea uh, eventually is to have a managed version. So right now, our customers deploy Cloud Query with, uh, so we provide Terraform and the Helm charts. So they like deploy it and it runs periodically on their infrastructure. They maintain also the database. So yeah, it's self-hosted right now. But the idea eventually is to have a managed version where people will need to to maintain their own infrastructure. So, like that will be the first step, right? I don't know, like, what features exactly, uh, or if we'll have like features that we'll have only in the commercial product and not in the open source one. So, uh, because it's a bit farther down the the road, but yeah, the plan right now is really to f- continue focused on the open source uh, adoption. So, we had like great great adoption in the last like uh, six uh, months to to a year from. You know, big companies from Fastly to Autodesk to Tempus, and like we want to continue like growing the, uh, this list of great users and supporting current one until we are sure like we hit the kind of the, the critical mass where it will make sense to start also like putting money into developing the managed version, right? Because like if you have too little users and you fork too early to managed version. Uh, then you will end up with very little users on your managed version, and will be turned to be uh, very expensive users. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting topic, though, because if I'm using Cloud Query, I probably don't want to have that data not on my servers because it's kind of a weird dichotomy there, a little bit, right? Like, what if I? I don't mean to be critical. I'm just saying, like, so if I'm using the managed version. That means that my data is going to live on your servers, basically. That tells the whole compliance story for for my organization. Yes, it's it's a fair feedback and like a good a good question. And I like I don't know all the answers to that, but uh, we do know like from the customers we talk to. Yeah, some of them probably will never buy our managed version, uh, but some of them actually like said that um, yeah, like like their whole policy is to use managed. Wherever possible, just because like infrastructure burden is is real, and they try to avoid it, and there is also somewhere in between, and this we will be able only to understand when like will be there like how good or how bad the conversion rate, and like do we need to come up with kind of smarter solutions to to make people more comfortable to uh, migrate to our managed one, either either it things like maybe uh, hosting the database somewhere in their cloud or not, like maybe it won't be a problem, right? Because we know it's not a problem for uh, some of our customers, but we don't know like the uh, the conversion yet, right? Well, to, 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 to be the devil's advocate to my own point, I also think that there's a third-party audit component that is really interesting where, you know, Cloud Query is SOC 2 compliant, all, all the... ISO 27 million, whatever it is. Um, only thousands right now. Oh, we're only th- sorry, we're only in thousands right now. Um, but yeah, having that. And then, of course, there's the obvious 
uh, I can say it because it's not my company. Uh, there, you know, there's options to help you with on-prem versions such as replicated. Sorry, Mark, but uh, I can shill for you every once in a while, right? Um, no, th- this all makes a whole lot of sense. It's just it's just a lot to think about. Um, and honestly, when we get into the compliance world, you know, we're all going through it, and it's very interesting, and it's a really, really, really interesting topic. But I think I hear one of the big takeaways is that like there's going to be a commercial offering, but you don't want to cannibalize or hurt the open source tool right now. So you're not in any rush to figure that out. When it makes sense, you're going to have it. But like the open source version is here to stay and like you're committed to supporting that right now. Yeah. So I think this is exactly it. And we are actually like I'm actually speaking from a painful lesson. So when we just started it, like I open sourced it first, like even before the seed round, it like took off like relatively quickly. We started to get like good traction from big companies and decided to double down on that. And our first thought was, oh, okay, great. Let's, uh, let's also start the managed version. Let's try to monetize quickly. And then like it turned out to be, uh, four or five months. Of half of the team of very expensive uh, experiment, <laughs> then we understood that it's it's not feasible to do both at mm-hmm. this early stage because like it's a complex project and like you need to work both a lot on the engineering to solve a lot of like hard engineering problems and also to work a lot with the community and the adoption to understand like what you need to develop. So like the project really has to be mature enough un- until you release Pwn uh, to the managed version. And yeah, like it will take time. So now from like startup and money perspective, you should be as lean as possible until you get the project to this level, right? Because you also don't, because it will take a lot of time to monetize apart from like maybe some support agreement you want to be like or like what we trying to be like as lean as possible until we are sure like we got it and now we like want to to split and like put more effort into the managed version which we know will be very expensive i think it's really interesting and it's a good lesson and that we've seen a lot of a lot of projects fall on their face falling into that trap um, and we've seen some other ones you know, kind of go to the path that you're talking about and be unbelievably successful. So it's a good lesson. And and again, our audience is kind of very interested in the whole the whole open source ecosystem. So it's a it's a great way to think about how to how to build a company around an open source project and, and just all the different uh, gives and takes of it. So I have a question, not to actually not talk about compliance or VC stuff, uh, but what is what is Cloud Query implemented in, and, and kind of tell us about uh, like how development works and, and all that stuff. Yeah, so it's written in Go. So the the, the first reason for that was like uh, apart from like that, a lot of new projects are written in Go is uh, like really the distribution thing. So like it's compiled to one binary. So that's like really eases up with with distribution. Um, yeah, other than that, it's really good language. It has downsides, uh, especially for some things. But I think in general, for something like an ETL, like pluggable ETL framework, it's worked pretty good for us. And like a little bit about the architecture, the architecture is actually really similar to uh, Terraform because we used a lot of their underlying libraries like Go plugin. So because we wanted to create a pluggable architecture, so we have Cloud Query, which is one binary, and then we have our official plugins for AWS or GCP, which are a separate binary and are hosted on our Cloud Query hub. So Cloud Query downloads the plugins that you want to use and then like runs them via gRPC via this like pretty widely used I would say like HashiCorp library, the, the Go plugin. So I think yeah. Yeah, they, they did a good job there. And I think it's like the best project probably out there around like basically loading plugins in, in runtime. So yeah, that's great to be able to like to find that and and model the architecture after it because you know like years ago that was a hard problem to solve in Go, and like being able to stand on the shoulders, if you will, and just be able to say, you know, oh great, like this is a 
provable pattern. It's got some mat- maturity behind it now. We can actually like write code in Go, which is what we want to write code in for all the benefits that we like. But but now we still we can like it's just the open source community, right? And being able to reuse that library and packaging and, and follow that pattern. Yeah, that that helped us a lot because yeah, it was a really tough problem. It got my, like much easier with this library, and like even this library is like when you use it, like it's quite complex. The, the good, the very good things is it's battle tested, yeah. and it like it works. You just need to read the documentation very well and understand how it works when you kind of like touch those pieces of code. But yeah, it saved us months of uh, development, if not years. Yeah, yeah, and probably some pain down the line too. You probably are saving yourself on a whole lot of pain for some weird edge case that you guys uh, didn't have, as they say. Yeah. Hey, does anyone know if KubeCuddle uses it for their plugin stuff? Does it use that? Do we know? Uh, I actually don't know the implementation of that, but KubeCuddle is just like separate binaries that are, have to be on the path for like the crew style plugins. Right, but they're extending their whole the plugin. Everyone's using plugins now for KubeCuddle, I think. Yeah. Uh, which is my most important question, Evgeny, and we'll we'll get back to other stuff. But cube cuddle or cube control? What is your answer? <laughs> I think cube control for me. Actually, I didn't know the other one. No. Oh my god. All right, Mark. Let's get. Let's. Okay. The interview's over. All right. We're done. We're good. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big cube cuddle guy. I'm a bi- I'm a big believer in cube cuddle. So I, I tend to ask everyone that question. Oh. Um, but you- <laughs> I I get it. Okay. I wasn't aware that like this is how you pronounce it. Okay. <laughs> No, I. I mean, I, I. I'm on a mission. Okay, I don't think there actually is a right answer per se. It's uh, Emacs versus Vin type world, or tabs versus spaces. But okay, so going back to the actual implementation, what is the hardest problem that you guys have kind of tackled so far? Was it the plugin architecture, or is there something else that's really challenging that you guys have dealt with? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think the hardest problem is around like how to support and maintain a huge amount of APIs, and I think, like also in the data world, like projects, uh, I think like Airbyte that integrate with big amount of APIs, and also project like Terraform, they have like uh, similar challenges and different solutions to that. So I think like this, this is like the biggest uh, challenge, and like also the biggest engineering challenge. And I can talk like talk about this a little bit, uh, and probably like maybe you saw also in Hacker News. Like a few, maybe a few months ago, like on Terraform, that like they stopped accepting community contributions for a while. I don't know if it's back. And like, if you go through the issues, like the number of issues is huge. Like, either it's because of like an underlying API or Terraform API. So, this is the biggest challenge, right? Because for Cloud Query to be very useful, it has to integrate with a lot, a lot of like APIs, both inside one cloud and also like across clouds and other SaaS services. And you want to do that like also fast, like because new APIs are introduced. And also you want to do that with a small team, right? Because otherwise you will have like a very large cost and we're not making any money yet, right? So we want to be as lean as possible also when we will be making money, right? So that's like the engineering challenge and like to talk a little bit more about just the engineering challenge at like at scale here is like how do you maintain that also and how do you test it? So a lot of our like a lot of our solutions were around code generation and trying to write tools that auto-generate that, like both some of our like integrations and also some of the tests. And this is like where we where we invest a lot so we can scale. More easier, catch more bugs in in development, and uh, stay as small as possible while supporting as many as possible APIs. And I can talk about like some of the code generation uh, like issues that we tackled. Yeah, like I, I mean, I'd love to hear some stories there around that. Like, how did you, you know, like adding one or two in, you know, probably not the hardest problem in the world to go figure out how to query EC2 data and, and write it in. But like when you actually get into both many of them and keeping them updated, that's when you're just really, really, really relying on automation to make the product reliable and, and, and up to date for everybody. Like I'd love to hear more about how you did that. Yeah, exactly. Like one, that's I think like a great point. When you just do like an EC2, people are like, oh okay, just like running that. But when you start to like supporting hundreds or thousands of AWS APIs, 
the amount of issues that, from also like people that use it. Oh, like this API is like not returning what I think it should, or like how do you catch as much bugs as possible early on? Otherwise, you will be also like bombarded with support requests. So maybe before, like I talk about the call generation, actually. In this specific world of providing abstraction on top of uh, cloud APIs, so it's like a well-known problem in like the Terraform, uh, Pulumi world, uh, data world, and actually AWS also like they are aware of that that their API is like is not unified and it's hard to generate uh, code for it. So they actually introduced AWS Cloud Control API about like six. Uh, or maybe seven months ago, which is like an API specifically uh, for tools like cloud security, posture management, uh, Terraform, Pulumi, so they can auto-generate their whole integration on top of this API, like unified uh, API endpoint. Uh, it's still very early on, and it doesn't support like all their APIs and so on, but I think it's a step in the right direction from like AWS side. Yeah, and on our end, like we we provide a lot of tooling around generating our plugins from AWS non-unified APIs. So uh, like that's one part. And the second part is also like generating the, the tests. So we have a lot of like mock tests, and we also have end-to-end tests uh, with real infrastructure. So we try really like to test as much as possible because otherwise you will Really be bombarded with support and like small annoying like bug fixes. Oh, this like small field is not populated into the database. Right. Right. I mean, and there are a lot of changes that happen on these, all these, there's a lot of surface area on the things that you guys integrate with. So I can imagine quite a few headaches. So, I mean, that brings up a good point though. Um, if I wanted to add something, um, I, I don't have your hub in front of me right now. What do I want to add? I want to add. Uh, I want to add Linode. I like Linode. I used to like Linode. I still like Linode. And I want to do this. And I want to do the community thing. How do How do I? Would you guys add a Linode? Uh, you know, actual infrastructure for the end end tests. And how How can people contribute? How can people can take part in this? I guess is kind of my question. Yeah. So there are actually some community providers. Uh, so we just market like you upload it to our Cloud Query Hub, but. We just market as community provider, uh, and then it's like up to you to manage and maintain it. Like we maintain uh, as much providers as we can, and we plan to like write more when some of our tooling will improve, so we can will be able to support more. But yeah, like for example, Yandex provider is a community provider; they maintain it. So like the third party cloud provider maintain it. But also we saw like other people write their own. Provider for let's say uh, Datadog because they wanted to extract more configuration, so they maintain it. How big is the team right now? How many people are working full time on Cloud Query? So we are around twelve people, mostly engineering. Uh, I would say around eight people working on the open source project, and three more people working on all our web facing assets, so Cloud Query Hub, all our documentation. Like both the Cloud Query docs and also like the provider docs, which is like all the schemas, all the tables, our policies. So like it's a lot of work there. So we have a, a team just just for that, and and then also like product and security engineer, like for you know customer support and kind of educating our customers, writing content tutorials. Like we found it to be super helpful for current users and new users. I mean, it's great. I'm looking at the the hub. I'm looking at your docs, and like you, you can tell, there's just a lot of effort put into this. I mean, you're solving a hard problem with a ton of different data, and like documentation is just so so important. Like, I love the way that you actually define the schema, so I can look at the Okta provider right now, and I'm thinking, you know, oh, like I wonder if I can actually do this. I can see the data you're pulling in and be able to like know whether you're going to support the use case I have or not, or whether I need to consider go, you know, create an issue or or try to. Extend that provider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like this is all up to date. So like uh, every time, for example, like the Octa provider gets updated or the AWS, so the docs are kind of auto populated. So similar to 
like a bit similar to Terraform Registry in a sense, I think, and maybe also like Docker Hub. But yeah, I think Terraform Registry is is a good example. Just like because they are dealing with very similar problem, just from the provisioning side. So in some sense, like it's a very similar problem, and maybe like we have a, a bit easier life because we we have only like the read problem and not the the write problem, which is uh, harder. Sure, I want to talk about like just open source in general. Like you have this open source project. You know, you have it looks like really good traction, like a good number of stars, like adoption of it. You've obviously been able to raise some money and create a company around it, and, and focus on growing the team. There's a lot of open source projects out there that that are also great, but maybe don't have that much visibility. So, what advice like can you tell us, or what stories can you share? How did you get to this many stars? Was it like a big reveal where you worked kind of behind the scenes and then open sourced the repo, or was there a moment on Hacker News or Product Hunt or something else that really helped accelerate traction? Do you have any tips? Yeah, sure. So I think in general, like stars is an awful metric. For for things, mm-hmm. so yeah, like we got like the initial the initial um, like star spike was from uh, Hacker News. Yes, I had to post it like five times to relaunch it like five times until it, it got like to the front page. Wasn't able to to do that. It's kind of like a hit or, or miss there. Mm-hmm. Like the first spike was just like visibility issue and. And then I just actually did a lot of like small things, uh, writing a lot about it. So it, it didn't solve like all my problems right away when I was still in the kind of like exploration phase. It was before we raised money. Like I was still trying to understand and talk to every Cloudflare user to understand like, do we have a long term users here, right? Or do we have like just, you know, one hacker news spike, right? So yeah, if you have one hacker news spike, please. Don't go raise money, even if you can. <laughs> I mean, it's not a good idea. So, <laughs> yeah. So, for like four months, I was posting a lot of content and tutorials on Reddit, on um, Hacker News, and also just waiting to see if someone starts using it, right? Because if I put it on the Hacker News, like even if it's interesting for someone, maybe it's like not his top priority right now. Right? Maybe it will be his priority in a month. So. So it was kind of like a drip of users from relatively medium to large to very large enterprises. I was talking to all of them, trying to understand like the use cases, trying to understand that they are going to use it like on a day to day basis, and kind of like only then I was like ready to to double down on that and raise the seed funding, and then really continuing doing the same thing. Right? It's like we still do that. We write a lot of content. We bring new users to the platform. We talk to all of all of them. We have monthly community hours. So, yeah, like there is no one thing you really have to like do this all the time. Yeah, success by a thousand cuts, as I like to say. <laughs> exactly. You know, this is a, a little bit off. Or we're going back to something you said, but you kind of mentioned something that I just wanted to ask you about. You were acquired by GitLab. You mentioned, and I know that they are pretty famous for their remote setup. And a lot of us are kind of have kind of we're forced into a remote setup type world a while ago, and now we're all kind of adjusting to like maybe a hybrid. Maybe some people are staying remote. I just I just want to say like, what are some of the big learnings that you, and things that you learned over there? Yeah, so one I like I learned I guess um, that it seems to work right that it's not like it's not something cr- crazy, you know. Uh, that that's like the first thing that. Nothing completely breaks if you just do remote, right? And I think like some people are maybe aware or are scared of like that if they will go remote, like that's it. But but before that, actually, I also worked remote for a lot of years, so it like wasn't completely new to me. But it still was nice to see it, like work in a large enterprise. So like I learned that you know communication is super important, like written communication, Slack, Notion. Those like pull requests, uh, trying to be like as communicative as possible. This really helps. Time zones are also like quite important uh, in remote. So if you have the luxury of like, being more or less in the same time zone, like this will be helpful. But you know, it, it really all depends on like 
what you can achieve, like what's your budget, where you can hire, right? So sometimes you can, you know, you, you, you have to be flexible. So sure. Yeah. Were there any, any particular, like little things, little details that they did that kind of helped bring the team together, keep people on the same page? Anything, anything specific that was just like, oh, we did a meeting every 13 days and that was super helpful or I, I don't know, just anything interesting there that. Yeah. So I, I took like, probably like a few things that I don't remember probably all of them. So maybe because maybe like some of them I like take for granted now, but one thing that I do remember that uh, we also have like in, in our company that I like to do. So in GitLab, you could like schedule coffee chats, like whenever you want with any other people just on the calendar. So I was doing that quite often, just like with anyone in the company, like you wanted to learn something or you wanted to meet someone new, just put it there. And like, People will take the meeting or will just say, oh, like, it doesn't work for me in this day. Let's do it another day. So, like, they were saying that this is okay to do. So, it wasn't strange for, for people. So, I think it, like, kind of really helped. And like, I personally really liked it. I met a lot of new people this way, uh, learn new things. Uh, it was like a great opportunity. You know, you have an opportunity to talk to any of 1,000 people in GitLab, like, for free, right? Totally. Cool. So I want to kind of come back and think about like, you know, going back to open source and kind of the ecosystem in general. You obviously work with cloud providers, not specifically Kubernetes. How close are you to the CNCF? Have you considered working more closely, like even potentially making like a a contribution of, of a sandbox project? And then the last kind of question in the space is, there is Cloud Custodian in the sandbox right now, right? Which is an open source project that solves at least on the surface, reading the docs, it sounds like a similar problem. And I'd love to hear your take on like, you know, where Cloud Query shines versus Cloud Custodian and kind of some of the differences between the two projects. Yeah, great question. So on on the Kubernetes, so we have like a Kubernetes provider. It is like still early on. And yeah, we want to invest more because we know like we have a few users that use it and uh, we've been asked for a lot of improvements around that. And we know also like it's a huge pain point. So it's definitely like th- there is definitely more work around this uh, integration on the on our roadmap. And for like the CNCF sandbox, I think like probably when we will get to it, like I'll be more knowledgeable if it will make sense for us. Uh, and like for now, like I heard a couple of different uh, suggestions and ideas from people that had more experience around that, and I'll be happy also to hear like maybe your experience. That like a, a few folks told us, you know, it's basically it's good. Like when I don't know your users ask for that, but other than that, uh, like the overhead is is too high. Some folks said that you know it's worth it and it helped them. So kind of like heard a few different opinions about that. So I don't have my own just because it's like a a bit too far from it. And with regards to Cloud Custodian, actually, it's a project I looked into even before we started Cloud Query because I was looking into like the security space. And I was looking into like, is there anything open source, like open source alternative to all those like enterprise companies? So I saw Cloud Custodian, but one of the big issues there when I tried to use it is that they focused on the end use case so that you have to like to learn this like DSL language for security. And they combine their ETL layer with the query layer. So, which is kind of like make the project kind of only serve this use case while the number of use cases are actually like infinite. So, the like in my opinion, the, the idea was quite good, but the architecture. I think wasn't the the best because actually what you want to do is to separate those two completely different problems, like hard but different problems. Like the one problem is to get all the data to a database, which is the first hard problem. And then actually the easier problem is then just to write rules on that. And also I think like writing rules in like a query language also from maintainer perspective. And also from a user perspective, it's much easier when you use a standard one, right? And you don't want, like, you, you don't need to implement a new one, right? So 
it's hard enough problem to solve the first one, the data engineering problem, that you probably don't want also to implement a, a query language uh, if you know if it's a solved problem. Yeah, that makes sense. And in, in thinking more about like those, the compliance and the policies and stuff like this, I'm wondering. You know, like the the use case very much makes sense, right? Like I totally understand it. We've recently gone through SOC two type two compliance, where you know we have to generate reports for auditors, and some of that's like you know, like there's there may be a startup out there that that that's run for a while has a lot of cloud infrastructure that they might not have their hand like be able to like inventory really well. So cloud query is amazing in that scenario. It's also good just to start off for compliance. But like I wonder now, you know, like we talked like when we first started about you know like. The, the the macroeconomic climate stuff is changing, you know, it, you know, in in tech, and you have to like, you know, one of the side effects is startups have to really become efficient, and you have to really think about managing costs more than you you used to. Have you found use cases, or like, has there been any transitions or surprises where you see folks using cloud query to get a handle on like cloud cost more and more these days, or has that not really changed at all? Yeah, I think. I think the users that use Cloud Query even before that, they I think were like aware of that. So I think it was like top priority for them also before that. Like something that we saw even before the climate change is quite a few big companies moving from or migrating from enterprise solutions to open source stack just because it became so immensely complex and expensive in the last couple of years that they understood that actually it doesn't worth it anymore and they can extend it to their own use cases and it becomes like more work and more money than like uh, they initially thought. So they were migrating to to open source stack, to cloud query or like to like considering other other also projects in the space. So I think this is something that like I think and probably I also hope that we will see more in the future. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the earlier conversation too. You know, you know, like I think you're doing a great job, and it sounds like you know that 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 move from proprietary software to open source solutions like Cloud Query makes perfect sense. I think that kind of speaks to the the next step is where like the foundations, like you know, CNCF, Apache Foundation, things like this start to become like the next level of like continuity and longevity of the project, knowing that. You know, while it's open source, and there's a, a way that you know, if if you know, hopefully this never happens, but if you know, you as an organization like no longer are, are supporting the project, great, it's open source. I can throw some engineers on it, and we can do what we need to do. But with that that foundation ownership of the trademark, then there's more of like an open governance model. There's like other folks that like have expressed that they're also counting on it, and they can like it gives those enterprises even like a more proven way to ensure that that project's going to last. Yeah, I, th- I think like that's probably the the best point in, in, in favor of that, I think. But also I think like if, if you go to, and, and again, like this is something that probably I would also dig deeper and try to like get more data points when we'll get to that. So probably also like, com- for example, companies like Terraform, right? They are not in the CNCF even though they have like successful, so you have like Confluent uh, and you have like Apache projects, so you have like successful examples on both sides, right? Yeah, and like we, I, you know, I'm, I'm here. I think Benji and I, neither of us, are going to advocate, you know, for or against it. I think it's just a really interesting thing to talk about and understand, you know, why some people have taken projects really, really early and put them into a foundation, and some people, you know, like like to your point, you know, Terraform is. It's an open source project, and but like it's still owned by HashiCorp, and like the the differences. It's just it's interesting to have those conversations and understand the motivations behind it. I mean, I think that the interesting thing that we're all kind of talking around is it used to be you never get fired for buying IBM, and now it's kind of like you're probably not going to get fired for buying a pretty or using a pretty robust open source ecosystem and community. Um, it's really weird how that's shifted. And now, obviously, IBM bought Red Hat, so I, I guess this is all this analogy has just gone sideways. But I think it's inter- it's really interesting the shift in enterprise purchasing, where like open source is now something that is is considered reliable and and predictable. And then obviously you you layer on these different foundations and and, you, and governance, um, and you get some more stability and confidence there. And it, it just kind of speaks to 
Because it was not like that. I would even go, what would you, six years ago, seven years ago, Mark? What would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you still looked for that support contract, right? And now you're like, no, I need to take the, the, the future into my own hands or let ensure there's a path, at least for me to be able to do it. So, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of a path, anything interesting to share on the roadmap? Yeah. So, I can talk a little bit about some of the things that are coming. So, one, we'll be looking into also adding more like database supports, right? I, I don't know exactly when. Because like right now our focus is really around tooling automation and testing. And like the data problem, the, the most important thing is that the data that you extract is it's it's coherent, right? You want to know that what you have in the database is, is your current configuration. Uh, you don't have like missing things or incorrect things. So this is something we put a lot of effort. But in terms of features, yeah, we are like thinking about Supporting more databases because, like, we it's a data problem, and some you know customers have different stacks. Um, they build their like data uh, analysis platform different ways. It's not always Postgres. Sometimes it's data lakes, data warehouse, things like BigQuery, Snowflake. So that's something that we'll be looking into. Another thing that is like not a feature per se, but more of like tutorials that. We actually just like released and people asked for and actually they even like built it in their own cloud query stack, but they asked for like concrete tutorials and we thought it will be interesting to share uh, with the community. So actually building like GraphQL layer on top of this data. So having a GraphQL API. So we did it with a project called PostgreSQL, uh, if you know it. So it automatically generates uh, GraphQL endpoint from your schema. So this was pretty useful from for some of the users uh, for kind of a search use case for their developer. Like the SRE team, for example, installed or deployed Cloud Query, and now they wanted to give like all the devs in the organization like the, a GraphQL UI to search for instances or. Uh, IPs when you know they debug or develop something and they don't have like access to all the accounts or they don't even know where this IP or instance is located. So you know just using like a GraphQL UI is, is um, it's pretty neat. So this is something that we that we did recently. Super cool. Yeah, we'll include a link to that in the show notes here too. Anything else on the on the far roadmap? Yeah. So another thing that we were looking into is or a problem that we heard from security teams or DevOps teams is that like when they build their security guardrails, both for the infrastructure as deployed and for like infrastructure as code, they end up like writing the same rules for uh, for their infrastructure, let's say, if they have a CSPM or like whatever enterprise product. And then they, like they write it in one query language and then they write the same rules let's say in, in things like OPA for Terraform or for CloudFormation in a different language. Uh, and then they have to like maintain it as we go. So something that we were looking into is giving teams the ability to write and maintain all the rules with, like, with one query language. And the idea around that was to integrate with things like Terraform or CloudFormation, right? read the Terraform state and convert it, transform it to Cloud Query schema. So this will give security teams the ability to write and to run the Cloud Query policies both on the infrastructure as deployed and on the infrastructure as code. And not only that, it will also give like open the door for things like detecting drift and doing all that with actually without writing code, right? Just just by solving a, a data problem. Wow, that's super cool. Um, well, Evgeny, I think we're, we're at time here, but I really just wanted to thank you for coming on. And we'll make sure to put a bunch of links in the show notes so they can find you. And uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for coming on. Really excited to see where Cloud Query ends up going. Awesome. Thanks, Benji. Thanks, Mark. Really, really enjoyed it here. It was great chatting with you. 
That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, head over to kubelist.com. I'm Mark Campbell, CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com. My co-host is Benji DeGroote, CEO at Shipyard, where they enable isolated ephemeral environments on every code change for companies of all sizes. Check them out at shipyard.build. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And finally, don't forget to sign up for the Kubelist weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kubelist.com.